Psalm 87 this evening. And before I read the psalm, I just want to point out to you that throughout the psalm, the psalmist uses a literary device where he will make reference to Zion and the gates of Zion and the city and to her. And throughout, the reference is not literally to the city, but to the people that the city represents, the people of God. So let's turn our attention to God's Word, Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city He founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, All my springs are in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we have a great encouragement from the psalmist this evening in Psalm 87. We are taught in Psalm 87 about the love of God for His people and about the wideness with which the gospel goes out into the world. Finally, we're taught about the worship that is our rightful response to these glorious truths. First, the fact that God loves His people. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. On the holy mount stands the city He founded, that is God. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Throughout the Old Testament, it's common for the the authors, especially the poets in the Psalms uh, and in the other uh, poetry and wisdom literature in the Old Testament, uh, to use the, the name Zion to refer to the people of God, to stand in for those people. God expresses His love here in these opening verses for His people. This is an extraordinary love. It is so extraordinary that the psalmist says, glorious things of you are spoken. Brothers and sisters, we are loved by God. And on the surface, that doesn't sound like the most profound point that could be pulled out of any text of Scripture. God loves us. We sing from the very beginning of our lives. If you were raised in the church, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But I think if we pause for a moment and really think about it, it is perhaps one of the most astounding truths in all of Scripture. Paul seems mesmerized by it in Romans when he says, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. This is the love that our Father has for us, that He's loved us while we were His enemies. He loves us. He places His love on us. He dotes over us as a father. In other parts of Scripture, He uses the images of a husband and a wife. He loves us as a husband, loves a wife perfectly. He is faithful to us always. God's love is so astounding that all who are looking, the psalmist says, say glorious things about us. They look at us, and not because of anything about us, not because of any beauty that exists in us apart from God, not because of 
of any astounding thing that we have done or are capable of doing, but merely because we are the objects of God's love, glorious things of thee are spoken. I think sometimes in the day in and the day out, particularly as we experience temptation and wrestle with sin, we're ashamed that we're tempted at all, ashamed that we give in to the sin. It may even be tempting for us sometimes to think to ourselves, good night, how could God possibly love me? My love in return is so imperfect, so flighty. Brothers and sisters, God loves you. He loved you when you were His enemy. He loves you infinitely and perfectly now that you are His child. And so no matter what you face, what circumstances, what difficulties in life, cling to this truth that you are loved by a God whose love is so overwhelming, so perfect, that glorious things of you are spoken. Paul speaks of this love in Romans chapter 8. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is how God loves us. God, the creator of all things, the one who is all-powerful, loves us perfectly, the creator, the Lord and giver of life. He loves you with a love incorruptible. The second thing that we see here is in contrast to the psalm that we looked at this morning, Psalm 79, where Psalm 79 is stressing the distinction between the nations, those who are in rebellion against God and Israel, those who are loved by God and known by God. Here the psalmist celebrates that the gospel is going out into all the world, into all nations. Look at verse 4. Among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the peoples. This one was born there. We who are being gathered from all the nations who are loved by God have all the privileges of natural-born citizens. It's an astounding list here. Rahab, in verse 4, refers to Egypt. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. So we've gone really from the western extreme of their known world to the eastern extreme, not only from one geography to another, but from the first people who are said to have enslaved them to the last people who are said to have enslaved them. Philistine and Tyre and Cush. If you were to look at a map in the back of your Bible, runs from north to south. 
and includes all of the peoples that surround Israel and are in relationship with Israel, some of them commercial partners, some of them constantly at war with them. God is in this psalm ranging from east to west, from north to south, including all of the nations. And he says of all of these, this one was born there, that is in Zion. To be born in Zion is to be a native citizen. It is to be one who has all of the rights and privileges of citizenship in this city. And all of the rights and privileges of being a citizen of Zion means that we receive all of the love that God is giving to His people. We are called by His name. He has claimed us for Himself. And this work is going out into all of the world. God's love is too big to be confined to one particular spot on the earth, to one particular ethnic people. It is going out into every tribe and tongue and nation. As he said to Abraham in Genesis 12, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In the New Testament, we're told that that very expression was a statement of the gospel. It is by Jesus Christ that all the nations of the earth are being blessed there are probably, I'm guessing, not many of us in this room this evening who are of Jewish descent. Virtually everyone here is captured in these verses 4 through 6. We are here because God's love goes out into the nations. And it not only goes out and finds us, it brings us home and says, this is where you were born. This is where you belong. This is who you are. This is your identity. You were born in Zion. How in the world does God accomplish this? We get an insight into that in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul explains that this is accomplished by Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says, Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you, that's us, the Gentiles, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Listen to the consequences, the results of what Christ has done for us. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
This is how God accomplishes this. This is how God, notice that in verses 4 through 6 of our passage this evening, it is God who is at work. For the Most High Himself will establish her, He says at the end of verse 5. The Lord records as He registers the people, this one was born there. God is making a people for Himself. And he is drawing people from every tribe and tongue and nation into that people. And he is placing his love on that people. Brothers and sisters, we are the object of the love of the God who created all things. We are granted all of the rights and privileges of the children of God. This is good news. It is such good news that our psalmist closes his psalm Verse 7, singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Now, at first, this may seem like a bit of an odd thing to say. We are not a people who are uh, particularly conscious of how close our source of water is. We can reach out, most of us, in at least three or four places in our home, twist a tap, and the water comes out. Water was life. It's life for us today. It's just so close at hand. For the people of Israel and the people of Jerusalem, to have a spring at hand was everything. Jerusalem, as a matter of fact, did not have any springs inside the city walls. The spring was just outside of the city. And so when Jerusalem was under siege, they lost access to their water. They were painfully aware of this. Hezekiah is famous for having built a tunnel from uh, the inside the city walls underground out to the spring that they would go to for water. They went to great lengths to make sure that they had access to this water. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Throughout Scripture, God has been using this image of springs of water to represent the salvation that He gives to His people. He's used it over and over again. In the Garden of Eden, we're told that rivers flowed out of that garden. That image is revisited in Revelation chapter 22 when we're told that a spring flows out from under the throne and waters everything, and it is the river of life. Christ picks up on this imagery when He says to the woman at the well, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink, and I would give you waters of life, and you would never thirst again. When God gives Ezekiel a vision of the temple, that place where atonement is accomplished, where life is granted in Jesus Christ, there is a tiny trickle of water running out from underneath the threshold. And this water, the further away that it gets from the temple, the wider it gets and the deeper it gets, it runs uphill it brings life everywhere it goes. It finally empties into the Dead Sea and everything blooms and the sea is filled with living things. Springs are an image that God uses over and over and over again to communicate to us that He is the source of our life. That He gives life to His people. And not just the life that we know now. We see now, as Paul says, in 1 Corinthians, dimly, as through a glass, the life that we know now is, is nothing compared to the life that is coming. Eternal life. 
made perfect forever in fellowship with God. This is what He holds out to us. This is what He has promised us. And it is not given to everyone, but God goes out into the world and calls many to Himself. If you are one here this evening who has made a profession of faith, who is believing, trusting in Jesus Christ and what He has done, and that alone, you're not trusting in your own work, you're not trusting that maybe God will enact a different plan at the end, you recognize that you are a sinner, that you don't deserve the love of God, that you have no hope apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ, and you are resting in that work. These springs are for you. They are promised to you and given to you. They are an expression of God's love for you. And so, as the psalmist suggests, the proper response then is praise. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Singers and dancers, those who are celebrating, those who are worshiping, our response to this truth that we are loved by God, that the love of God is so, so perfect, so frankly incomprehensible that glorious things are spoken of those that He places His love on. That He's loved us while we were His enemies. He has loved us while we were the nations that are spoken of this morning in Psalm 79 in rebellion against Him. He has placed His love on His people. He rejoices to love us well. All of this is possible only because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was willing to take on flesh, to come into the world as a part of His creation, to suffer the indignities of being the very thing He has created, and then suffering at the hands of His creation ultimately taking upon Himself the sin of His people, suffering the punishment that that sin deserves because God is perfectly just, and in so doing, removing all of our sin and guilt. It's the ultimate act of God's love for His people. It ought to make us shout for joy. It ought to comfort us in our darkest moments. It ought to sustain us when we don't know if we can go any further. It should give us an unshakable hope in the moments when we are bowing our heads and confessing our sins once again. Brothers and sisters, He loves you. Let's rejoice and give thanks for that fact. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do give thanks. It is such a simple truth that you love your people. And yet, as we plumb the depths of that truth, we find that you love us in so many ways. That there's no expense that you will not spare for your people. That you are patient with us. That you provide for us. You work faith and repentance in us. You carry us. That there is a day coming when you will make all things right and all things new. We thank you that you have loved us even though we have been unlovable. Father, we pray that you would 
continue to build us up into the very image of Christ as we await the return of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the day when all of the promises will finally be fulfilled. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.